Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz, and thanks to Steve Schultz for that brilliant new theme song. On this episode of the Paltrowcast, you'll hear three interviews with hardworking and successful entertainers. First up is my interview with Leif Garrett. Leif was, of course, one of the definitive teen idols of the 1970s, who also found fame as an actor and musician in the 1980s. He continues to work regularly, and he released an autobiography called Idle Truth last year in late 2019. I had the pleasure of speaking with Leif by phone in December 2019. Thanks for calling right on time there. How's it going? Uh, I'm good. How are you? Great. Thank you very much. So much I want to ask you about, and I guess I'll first ask you about the book. How long did you spend writing it? We uh, signed a contract with the publisher um, in, in late summer, and uh, it, it was originally going to be released on February 14th. Um, how funny, right? Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so it was kind of a rush thing. But, you know, um, it, it was just too, too quick to, to get it done and to get it, you know, done well. So we ended up release, uh, moving the date back. Um, but uh, it took about a year. When I talk to some people who make memoirs and they have to look back in the past, they say that they love to write and other people say that they hate looking back at the past. Which one are you closer to? This was a cathartic experience for me. This was um, some things that I held on to and kept, uh, you know, to myself for many, many years, over 40 years. And um, uh, finally letting them, you know, because they didn't sit well with me. Um, and uh, people will know what I'm talking about when they read the book. Um, that it's just, it, it was a cleansing of sorts uh, and, and really letting people know, you know, the, the, down, the down and dirty dirt of, of reality of, of the uh, situation, you know. And are you hoping that there's any takeaways from people who read the book, for example, that they think of you a certain way or are you just really letting people think what they want? Well, see, originally, it's funny, man. Um, it's, it's, it's a really good question because this, this book, for me, originally was uh, for me to let people know who I am now, who I am and because of everything I've gone through and everything I've done uh, about the person I am now and who I really am. Because people have a lot of misconceived ideas about me, uh, everything from uh, being a Scientologist to being uh, a, a reborn again Christian to being nothing but a, uh, a, a drug addict. You know, and I really wanted to, you know, set the record straight. I think the, that the the uh, publishers and the uh, my co-writer and everyone involved was really wanting to, and I think in the audience as well, was looking for uh, a memoir about the days uh, then, you know, talking about, you know, as if I'm letting them in on what it was, what I was doing then and what was really going on then. And, and it was that. Um, I had a different way I wanted to uh, do the book. That would be the second book. Um, but the, uh, this one was, it's like coming from a place that was like a 15-year-old telling about what he went through back in the day when he was 15, 16, 17. The thing I want people to take away from this more than anything is, is really, it's your life. Ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Find out. All the, all the, you know, cross the, the T's, the dot the I's, uh, minds the P's and Q's. Ask all the questions, you know? So if I'm hearing you correctly, though, it sounds like you are planning on writing a second book. Yes, sir. That's absolutely a great thing to hear. 
Now, not everybody realizes that as a recording artist, you've actually taken a lot of risks over the years. And if I look at your album from 2007, for example, Three Sides, you did some interesting covers, and it's a mix of songs that you're very famous for and songs that inspired you. And I hear Cheap Trick on there and Roxy Music. Are you listening to music all day? Are you that kind of guy? I am that kind of guy. I, I love music. I always have. Uh, I, I, I like to. I like it just on in the background, even if I'm not paying full attention to it. But I'm one of those people that, you know, when I buy a record or, or I hear something that I really like, a record, I say, um, uh, LP, um, that I will listen to it until it's worn out, like over and over, and get everything out of it I can. And uh, do you have plans to record a new album? Because, of course, when somebody writes a book, people are starting to go, well, what else is there from them? Yes, that's, that's true. I, I, I will. I was actually planning on uh, releasing something with the book, but I, I just didn't find the inspiration uh, in the songs. You know, I didn't have anything that I really felt that was worthy of doing that. Um, I, I'm still always writing music and, and playing music. Uh, and, uh, like I, I still play at the whiskey go, go, uh, you know, quite often during the year, just here and there, you know, get up on the ultimate jam night and stuff like that or different nights anyway. Um, but yes, I will be releasing something in the future, uh, before the end of the year, but more than anything, I really want to concentrate on film and television right now. And you've been famous for so long that you've seen so many different cycles of fame. And when you were first at your first peak, there were conventions in terms of autograph signings where it was just, you know, one person's there and signing autographs for hours. That went away, and now Comic-Cons are kind of everything. When did you start to notice that the Comic-Con business model and all that would be a good part of your living and that a lot of your peers could be making a living doing that? Well, that's interesting. I've done about, I think, three or four of them. Um, And... The thing I like about them is that you, you, you meet the people that are uh, the names, you know, uh, on the letters. You, you actually get to meet the people who wrote the letters and, the, and bought the albums and stuff. But um, um, you can make quite a good living at it. That's not something, just for me, I, you know, as much as I like meeting the fans and stuff, it's, I, I feel kind of cheesy asking somebody for money um, uh, for, for an autograph or, or for a, a photo, but that is part of my business, you know, and as, as, as weird as it feels, uh, you know, it, it is a, a, a good way of making an income. I have not done it as much as, as many others. Um, I know some people that make a living off of just that. Uh, do you have any entertainment aspirations besides TV, film, and music? For example, would you ever see yourself hosting a podcast one day? Absolutely. That's, uh, that's something for sure. Um, I, I also am very interested in the idea of having a radio program uh, on Sirius or something like that. Um, you know, like Jonesy has his Jonesy jukebox, uh, Steve Jones from the Pistols. Um, he's got a very popular uh, program, which, which is really cool. It's a really good one. Uh, you should listen to it sometime. But I, yeah, I would love to do something like that. But also, I'm interested in, I, I've been, I'm writing a script right now as well. Um, and, uh, and then I've also, you know, got a book that wouldn't be a memoir or an autobiography, uh, something a little more along the lines of philosophical and, um, 
um, uh, approach to life. Got it. So you're always creating. So looking back at everything, though, is there an accomplishment that you're most proud of? I didn't really catch that in the pages of your book. If there's a project that you look at as being your most prized possession and the things that you're most proud of. Well, there are two things in particular. Uh, one is, and this is the first one, uh, winning the Western Heritage uh, 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 Wrangler Award, which is a Cowboy Hall of Fame. I, I won that for uh, a portraying a Pony Express rider uh, in an NBC miniseries uh, called um, uh, Peter Lundy and the Medicine Hat Stallion. And that I'm extremely proud of. Um, the other thing is winning the job uh, to do The Outsiders. That wasn't just given to me. Um, it was a very intense uh, casting to do that. And everybody on that film was uh, doing the same thing. Then nobody in that film was, was given the role. They had to earn it. And of course, that's a film that still holds up today that people still talk about. But one thing that's always yeah. bothered me about that movie is how bad mm -hmm. the Stevie Wonder theme song is. How do you feel about that? Yeah, it was okay. I, you know, it, was, it wasn't his best work, I don't think. You're right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it was okay. Um, you know, I don't want to talk bad about Stevie because I, I admire the man like crazy. Um, it, so his stuff is absolutely phenomenal. But then some of his other stuff, I think, is really kind of a chachi, you know, pop boorish. That's a diplomatic way of looking at it, and I appreciate that. So yeah. recapping everything here, there's another book coming from you. You may eventually do a radio kind of project. You're hoping yep. to do more music in the future. You're playing yep. the whiskey a go go often, so it sounds like you are working all the time, and you're doing exactly what you want. And the memoir was a therapeutic process, am I right? The brighter days are ahead. You are right on the money, and um, yes, um, and everything, good or bad, in my life, I ha I look at as a lesson, because if you don't, you can really get down about the things that happened that were bad, but if you take away that, it, you know, it became a lesson and you, it never let it happen again, then you, you win. You've kind of answered this already, but my closing question is that I always say, any last words for the kids? Anything that you can add to that part? Absolutely. You know, again, um, positivity is, is, mindset is really such a major thing in life. Um, there are always going to be people who uh, will be jealous or people that will uh, try and drag you down because they don't have what you have or they think that you uh, owe them uh, because you have something more than that. But, you know, that's just part of life, and it's okay. Just know who you're with and know your real friends. Know the people that are really a friend. Next up is my interview with professional wrestler Tessa Blanchard. I spoke with Tessa in January, right before she made history in becoming the first ever world champion in Impact Wrestling. Tessa is, of course, a third-generation wrestler, and her fiancé, Daga, is also a notable wrestler. Tessa opened up about her acting aspirations and showed a more fun side of her than I expected before the chat. Hi, Tessa. It's Darren. How's it going there today? Good. How are you doing? Doing great, and I have to say congratulations to all of your success so far in the last two years. 2020 looks to be another big year for you, especially with Hard to Kill kicking it off. Everyone is kind of in your corner this year. Does that affect how you approach a match at all? You know, I don't know. I've, I've seen a little bit of a split response online, so I'm not sure. Sammy's got a few fans of his own. 
Um, but I'm honestly, I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I'm trying to stay focused. I've been training really hard for this Sunday. So I try to just mute everything else out and that way maybe the nerves won't get me as much this Sunday, but you know, I, I, I put that pressure on myself, especially when, uh, you don't want to let people down, but you know, Sammy and OVE have been in my path for the past eight months. So that's been my main focus. Please take this as a compliment that you're, you're such a distinct performer and such an independently respected person that you're basically a brand. I'm wondering how much of that was by design and, and planning and how much of that was just organic. You know, I, I don't think that I've particularly tried like on purpose to brand myself. I know I, I'm not really sure. Um, I, I love wrestling. I love pro wrestling. Uh, whether it's against a man, whether it's against a woman. And I love the fact that I get to do it and be in the position that I am right now. And I feel like also when something is just right and something's meant to happen, and it's easy, it's, it's, it is organic. And people who've really dug into your history know that musical theater was something that was in your past. Do you ultimately hope to do more acting? Uh, this is something that my manager and I talk about quite frequently um, because I would love that. I love doing the stunt work for fighting with my family, the page movie and working with the rock on that. I, I, I loved being on set and just being around that sort of thing. And then growing up, I always did musical theater and, uh, was in different types of theater things that my parents put me in. I was in the Charlotte children's theater. I did the North Carolina Shakespeare recitation competition. I, I did uh, all the school musicals in middle school and high school. I, I always loved it. Um, and then I found my love for pro wrestling, and it's kind of like the best of both worlds. Um, but ultimately, in the future, I would love that. You don't have to blow anyone's cover if you don't want to, but is anyone else on the Impact roster also very theater-centric? You know, I feel like there's quite a few people. Uh, Brian Cage and I are super close friends, and he... Um, I've always said he would make a really great villain in, like, a Marvel movie. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I know Taya does uh, some acting stuff. She lives out in Cali. Um, I know Kiara Hogan has talked about it before. I'm not sure. I feel like I feel like in our industry there are a lot of people who would love to dabble in both. But, yeah, I can't think, I can't think of any others. Well, that's pretty great of an answer right there. So somebody like you that's in tip-top shape at all times – how much of that is genetics, really, and how much of that is actually working hard all day, every day? Oh, gosh. I don't know if it's mostly genetics. I, um, when I first started wrestling, I had never lifted a weight in my life. I, I say that a little bit dramatically, but I, I didn't really know how to lift. I didn't know my body the way I know my body now. I didn't know how to do my arms and my back and my shoulders and my legs and my chest, and I, I didn't understand it. And now I know my body. I experimented with different diets. I've uh, tried different workouts and whatnot. And I know what works for me. Um, I do feel like genetics play a little bit of a part in it, but I also feel like diet and workouts are super important as well. And without them, without like a strict diet and without uh, putting your time in in the gym, you're not going to ever get the results that you want. And bringing it back to hard to kill, Big, big match right here. How much of your 2020 do you know besides Hard to Kill? You know, not, not too much. I have uh, 
I have my schedule for 2020 from Impact. I have uh, a few signings that I've booked out, not too far. Um, I usually don't book things out way too far in advance because I don't know how I'm going to be feeling or if I'm if I'm going to want to travel that weekend. You know, I I don't know, and I have the freedom to make those choices and those decisions now, so I take advantage of it. Right now, my focus is on Sunday and has been for the past month. I took December off to visit with family, which I had hadn't in a while for the holidays, and uh, it was nice. It was nice to rest and just visit with family and take a, a break from the work life and go be in real life for a while. And going back to what I was asking, with your independent kind of spirit and all that, are there any goals that you mark towards 2020 in general? Are you the kind of person that writes down their goals and has the vision board? Or at this point, do you just let things happen? I've always said since the beginning of my career that I want to make a history in a way that's unique to me. Uh, in a world where, or a time where women are having the first this and the first that, and we're given such a platform, um, I want to make history in this business in a way that's different than anybody else and then and that is unique to me. And I feel like Impact is giving us the platform through intergender wrestling, which I perceive as just pro wrestling, um, to do just that. I set goals for myself that have never been accomplished by a female athlete. Um, and, and that's just another thing that I'm going to be doing this Sunday is setting out for a goal that's never been accomplished by a female athlete. And aside from wrestling and everything we talked about, is there something that you wish more people knew about you in general? Um, not necessarily. I think I put just enough out there online, but I, I also have, I, I keep a sense of privacy as well. There is a lot that people don't know about me, hobbies and interests and whatnot. Um, but I, I keep a sense of privacy just to keep a balance, you know. Uh, I never want to be one of the people that get carried away and let the money and the fame change the person that they are. Um, I, I work pretty decently to, to keep a balance and to stay grounded. Um, so I think that keeping a sense of privacy is an important factor with that. Well, I asked that part because sometimes you see people who are on television who are famous. They have hobbies that are very surprising that they've been sheltering for a lot of years. Like, for example, yeah. Rod Stewart was on a cover of a magazine recently for having built a train system. He's big into trains and all that. I didn't know if you had something like that where he said, well, actually, I own a deli. <laughs> so I assume nothing like that for you. <laughs> Man, I wish I owned a deli. Um, let me think. There... We have some pretty fascinating family history, um, just outside of wrestling, too. My great-great-uncle was the very first person to ever fly across the English Channel in a hot air balloon. Um, that's a fun fact that nobody knows about me. Wow, I'm not going to be able to top that one. So being uh, mindful of your time here, Tessa, uh, any last words for the kids? Uh, not too much. Thank you guys for having me on. This has been fun. Last, and definitely not least, is my chat with Jason Wade and Steve Stout of the band Oswald. Jason is also the frontman and songwriter behind the band Lifehouse, while Steve notably worked with Lost Beach. The two recently released the album Born in a State, which we spoke about in addition to talking about Lifehouse, musical influences, and upcoming plans. I really enjoy your new album. It's not exactly what I was expecting from you guys, even though I'd heard the covers you've done and all that. 
Were any of those oh, songs no. originally slated to be Lifehouse songs in any way? Definitely not. No, this has been kind of, this is our third record now, if you count the covers record. So we, um, you know, we started this uh, probably a year and a half ago overall, the project. And it was just out of a, you know, let's do something that is not Lifehouse, you know, let's do something that doesn't have, not that there's rules around that, but like a different, you know, just what would we not put in that box, you know? And uh, we both just love the Beatles and Elliot Smith and stuff. And, um, you know, I think it was kind of a like, let's chase that and the indie stuff. And I played in, um, I played guitar in Lifehouse as well. And I played in some indie bands before that. So I think it was kind of like blending all of those things together. And a lot of people have used the term <laughs> desert rock to describe your new album because of those California kind of influences. Did you know what the mm-hmm. band was going to sound like before you started recording? No, I, I think that the, the the thing about this project with Oswald is every I think every record is going to evolve into something different. Um, just how it started in its inception with me and Steve just kind of hanging out and like just trying a couple songs just for fun. Like we were just messing around and we're like, whoa, this is good. And then that turned into three songs, which turned into a whole record, the Sweet Delirium record, our first one in like two weeks or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Really, really quickly. And so our whole kind of, thing with this project is don't overthink anything and and try not to like stay in one box longer than necessary if you feel like inspired to go try something else you know which is there's a lot of freedom to that and being that you both play in lifehouse what sort of expectations do you have in this band or is it really just a creative release and fun for you to do I think we kind of led with that, you know, and, and our mantra from the beginning was like, we'll play shows if people want us to play shows or things like that. So, you know, I think we're, we, to be honest, it all kind of started with just like, let's write like four songs. We had like two weeks that we um, decided to go to the studio and we were like, let's just try to write some stuff for fun and both sing and see what that sounds like. But I think it just kind of snowballed into a thing that is like a really fun outlet for us and um like jay said you know like when we find new records we really love it's like man how did they get that guitar tone you know how did they get that drum sound so it kind of is is more about the production side for us like we definitely prefer the studio side of things and you know it's also been a really fun way for us to meet some new folks and uh, as producers because we produce this stuff ourselves obviously and you know produce some other artists that get it and like like that sound and, and kind of want to, to, to find their way into that lane as well. So it's kind of just been a fun thing to fill out our, you know, fill out the calendar for us. And especially since Lifehouse is getting busy again, you know, it's for me, my, um, not frustration, but just, well, a little bit of a frustration just with how the old music business would work. It's like you would put one album out every like three years because you would have to do endless promotion and, you know, countless tours. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was like, oh, 12 songs, every three or four years just isn't enough. So Mm. our whole thing is like, we want to, our goal is to put out two albums, two LPs a year. Yeah. Just to kind of keep that, that creative flow going. And then you can still do like other projects and stuff, but yeah, it's just, it's nice to have an outlet. That's all very ambitious to say the least that you're aiming to do that much (laughs) music. But I also know that Steve, you know, besides the work that you did with lost beach, you yourself as a producer have a lot going on. Are you the sorts of guys that are just writing every day, writing all the time? Yeah, I think it goes through phases. I think it's funny because there are so many hats, you know, it's like there's songwriter guy 
there's we have like a little record label called All's Well Records. So there's like label guy, and then there's producer guy, which sort of mixer guy, I guess. And then there's like live guys, which is funny when we don't do that for a while because you're like, oh man, we gotta we gotta go, we gotta rock, you know. And <laughs> that's always fun to like practice back up for that. But I think it, I think it'll go through like a, like hyper focus moments of like, I think a lot of times, especially if we're like either together for like a solid week. And we're like, let's just start a bunch of songs or if we're separate and like, I have a studio at my house, Jay has a studio here. And it's just, you know, like, I think, I think you just kind of know that moment where it's like, we don't really have any songs right now. And we need songs versus like, we have a ton of songs and then, or, or like we've done too much and we're like, oh, yeah. okay, I need to take like a week off. And yeah, I need like, to go watch some movies. Such a guitar. So it's like, it's hard to find that balance too, mm-hmm. where. I think both of us get so excited with the creative process where we become like little kids in a candy shop with like mm-hmm. new keyboards or like new plugins or new mics and we want to try everything. And then mm-hmm. I think that like we kind of like tucker ourselves out where it's like, okay, yeah. we need to take a couple break, a couple days break. Yeah. Do you guys manage the project yourself? Uh, because obviously Lifehouse has a traditional manager and booking agent, but it seems like you guys are doing everything yourselves on this one. Yeah, and we have a third partner at our, our label, All's Well Records, Max Allen, who actually, he mixed our entire first record, and he did a, a few of the mixes on this new record, and we've kind of really spearheaded it all together, and our Lifehouse manager, Jude, helps us out a little bit, too, when we really get stumped, but mostly... We're kind we, of managing it all together, though. Yeah, it's kind of a, a bit of a, a brainchild of all that, so... What was the original yeah. conversation that happened where you guys are like, hey, uh, do you want to write some music outside of Lifehouse? How does, how does that happen? I think that initially, um, I, uh, my main engineer kind of left and went on the road with this other band. And so I don't really run Pro Tools or do any of that stuff. So I do like an engineer to facilitate uh, me writing songs and stuff, which I did a lot on my own with Lifehouse. I collaborated with um, our manager, Jude, a little bit, but did a lot of it on my own with just an engineer. And so Winnie kind of went into a different direction, right? I called yeah. yeah, yeah, we were on a tour, a Lifehouse tour, and, and you kind of gave me the heads up. And when he was on the tour, he was out with us for that, and you were like, I think he's going to get really busy. Um, you know, I probably will need a new engineer, and so I came home from that tour, and I was like, I'm going to go produce everything I can so I can, like, figure this out and get better at it. And I've, I've been doing it off and on for a long time, but Lost Beach was like, I think that's when I started that project with um, with my friend Johnny and we kind of just made a couple records like on around and that was like a really good way to, you know, just get like better at that stuff. And then it was funny the moment of like, Oh, we can use logic too. Cause as a logic guy versus not so much pro tools. <laughs> and I thought that was the, the hurdle, but yeah, I think we, and then we were like, let's write a couple songs just for, you know, submit them to Sony cause you're with them. Yeah. And, just like for, we were, di- I think we were just like, let's write a couple like TV songs or something. And then mm-hmm. we wrote and we're like, well, this is w- way better than we thought it was going to be. Like, yeah. Maybe too good to be yeah. that. Yeah. And so like, honestly, like the whole thing happened so organically, it wasn't predetermined at all or premeditated. And I think that's yeah. why it worked and why I was excited because I was kind of feeling, um, just, you know, I was just writing a lot of songs for other people and doing like some sync stuff and like taking a break from Lifehouse. And it just, it really just reminded me of like a really pure, uh, chemistry and collaboration that you really can't, you can never plan that, you know? So we just kind of went with it and that's where it started. And when it comes to influences, you guys of mm-hmm. course have the right influences, but did you guys ever find yourselves hair metal guys or Van Halen guys or kiss guys, anything like that? 
Oh, dude, I started with Van Halen hardcore in high school. <laughs> I I played, I knew every song. I couldn't do like, I couldn't do the hard solos, like uh, like the jump solo, could never do it. But like Panama, Eruption, I think I could play Eruption at one point in my life. I think my, my, uh, my mom was really conservative growing up and she didn't let me listen to that much music. And so as soon as I like moved out of the house, I think I skipped that phase and went straight because mm-hmm. I was at the age where it was like, I was obsessed with Nirvana and Pearl Jam and like all the Seattle bands and stuff. And then that augmented into like a love for the Beatles. Like it was such a musical discovery for me between the ages of like 16 and 19. And then I found Elliot Smith who became one of my all time favorite songwriters and artists. So yeah, I think, I think I definitely have an appreciation for it, but I think that I missed that and then kind of went to the post grunge thing. So you never had a Motley Crue kind of phase? (laughs) <laughs> no, not not really. I mean, I definitely appreciate it. Our bass player in Lifehouse loves. Oh, he Monica. loves to rock. Yeah, he's he he's. I think he loves that stuff. I, I love that stuff still. I have such a soft spot in my heart for that. My dad uh, plays music. He plays keys, and we had like a cover band in high school. And, and like Journey too. <laughs> oh, Journey's is number one for sure. And so nostalgic. Yeah, that stuff. I would go through six month phases. I would just get like super obsessed with one band, and it was like. Ben Halen, I think Rush was one of them. I, I think the Doobie Brothers were one of them. All over yeah. the place. I like yeah, that. but it, there's so much to learn from all those bands. And then it was like, I, you know, I think you discover. Then I think I like kind of like circled back to like the '90s stuff, and then got into the indie stuff later on. You got to the indie stuff basically sooner than I did. Funny enough, I think. I think that you like music finds you sometimes when you're not mm-hmm. even looking for it. You know, even like Elliot Smith for me, like I was signed. Um, to DreamWorks when I was like 18, 19 years old and Elliot was on that label and I remember someone giving me like a promo copy of XO and just like driving back in my little really shitty truck just kind of listening to it over and over and over and over and just got obsessed with it while I was making No Name Face. So it's like I think that my songwriting kind of took a shift after that first Lifehouse record too to be more, um, I don't know, just conscious of uh, chord changes and melody changes and stuff like it, it had a big influence on me two quick questions and then you guys are free mm-hmm. and the first one is the oswald name did you know that you were gonna have the yeah. o through it when you came up with the name uh, is that also from the danish alphabet uh i think i was like a fan of borens and some other bands that were like it just seemed like a right of entry of like the, the indie thing jay came up with the name and then i was like let's cross through the o there might be another like there might have been another Oswald out there and we needed to like do something to make it not the same too. I can't remember, but I think that with the name, um, it's so tough too, right? Like finding a band name when you already have music. And I think that Mm -hmm. this one came really quickly because I think the music just reminded us of the name and vice versa. Like it just, the music sounded like Oswald. Oswald felt like the Mm -hmm. music, you know? I think it just looked cooler with the cross through it, like looking at it too. I think a lot of it is that it's like your band name. It's crazy how like a font will make a difference of your band name feeling like a cool band name versus not, you know? Totally. And there might've been a little like, can we clear this? Yeah. Part of that. Maybe we'll like uh, cover our tracks. Yeah. We'll put a, we'll just flash through that guy. <laughs> Great. So uh, in closing, any last words for the kids? Oh man. Uh, I don't know. I think just uh, keep finding new bands that you love. You know, I think this whole record was like, um, you know, I, I moved to Nashville and, and met a new girlfriend and, and I think I got stuck with music I liked and it was like, she showed me all these new bands that I was like, how did I not know these bands, you know? And there was this massive, just like 
holy crap there are so many cool bands out there and like we can do this you know like and i think to me that's what the born in the state record was it was like how do we kind of like channel a lot of like the there's so many cool bands out there like uh cutworms and fox warren and bonnie din that are doing the like full retro thing and like really leaning into it and i think that i don't know i just think staying inspired and always trying to look for new music even when you feel a little lazy and don't want to i think that that's like the best advice to anyone or yeah just find inspiration anywhere you can even if it's not from a band like it could come from like an indie film or i don't know anywhere really you know you just always try to stay inspired Thanks for listening to the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz, as produced by PureGrainAudio.com. Theme song by Steve Schiltz. Audio mix by Mark Pirro. Until next time, have a great Shabbos.